This podcast is brought to you by the Maryland State Library Agency. The MSLA podcast features presenters from statewide youth programs, as well as learning opportunities for library staff and resources for patrons of the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Print Disabled. So hi, everyone. I'm Ashley Biggs with the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Print Disabled coming at you again this October with uh, two very special guests I'm excited to introduce. They are part of Dyslexia International and they are going to talk to us and have a conversation about dyslexia. So please welcome uh, Christine and Dan C. Hi guys. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. I'm really excited that you guys are here um, uh, as a dyslexic. I know that it, the, people go, oh, is that a real, that, that's like a real thing, isn't it? And, you know, so I'm glad you're here to dispel some of the myths around dyslexia. And if you guys wouldn't mind taking a few minutes and introducing yourselves to our virtual audience, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. Sure. So my name is Dan C. Uh, I'm the president of IDA Maryland. I am a teacher by trade. I teach math and science, but I'm also dyslexic. And my brother's dyslexic, my father's dyslexic, all three of my cousins are dyslexic. So I, I come from a, a long lineage of dyslexic learners. And that's kind of, you know, I learned to memorize a lot as I was growing up. And that was how I floated through school for a while. And around middle school, the, the wheels kind of fell off. And uh, at that point, my family knew there were some problems. And I got tested by Roger Saunders, who was a you know wonderful, wonderful person, and he was able to uh, diagnose that I was dyslexic. And at the time, my brother had already been diagnosed as dyslexic too, and that was some years before. So we had an inkling that something was going on similar to my brother. My brother was much more severe. He's younger than me. And so he recommended that I go to the Gemesee School. So it was a school for dyslexic children. And my brother was already there. My cousins started, had gone there too. And it was very successful for them. And it was a transformative school for me. Uh, it was a school that had a structured literacy program. It was a school that catered to the individual needs of the students and created an environment that where learning was challenging, but doable and achievable. And, and they created goals for me that uh, that instilled a love of learning that I continued on. And as I went through high school and, and into college and started kind of doing the normal college thing of, you know, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that, I'm, you know, I was going to be an architect and then an artist and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I interned back at Gemesee and realized at that moment that I wanted to be an educator and, and it kind of came full circle. And I, um, at that point, I went, you know, I, I got my degree in, in education and began teaching and, and through that and, and just through the people I've met, um, I got, you know, linked up with IDA Maryland and, you know, I spent time teaching dyslexic children and I'm now at a school that doesn't cater to just specifically dyslexic children. So being a part of IDA has been really wonderful in terms of being able to be an advocate for the, the students that I always have a soft spot for. So. All right. Awesome. So I am Christine C., you know, what I'm doing now is I'm going to be the head of the uh, middle school at the Odyssey School, um, which is a school for children with dyslexia and other language learning uh, differences. Um, previously, I was at the Gemesee School. Um, I was there 
Director of Educational Technology for their lower middle school. Again, as Dan said, another school for students with dyslexia. Um, so that's really where my passion for dyslexia came about, um, was working at the Gemesee School. After leaving there, um, I've been working on my PhD, and my focus is on teachers who have dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, or ADHD. Um, so really thinking about you know, the fact that dyslexia is a lifelong diagnosis um, and thinking about how do we support the adult learner as well and also in the workplace. So um, specifically for educators in my research, but showing that there's a need for support from childhood, you know, through adolescence, through adulthood and kind of viewing dyslexia as that uh, lifelong diagnosis. Um, so that's really my background and my connection to dyslexia. And currently I'm the vice president of IDA Maryland and I am supporting Dan. And we actually did meet at Gemesee while we were both teaching there. So, um, you know, both of us have this passion and are excited to really be a part of IDA and making a difference um, in this field. So can you give me a little background on what IDA is? Sure, so <clears throat> IDA is the International Dyslexia Association and um, as stated, it's an international organization in that sense that there are branches across the country and in other countries, but primarily there are branches across the United States. And the purpose of IDA is we promote uh, structured literacy programs for students with dyslexia and just for reading in general. Uh, and so obviously the, the point is to really focus on helping students like who have dyslexia, but especially through the K through third grade level. And every branch is different. So where are the main mission is that is promoting structured literacy and, and, and promoting, um, you know, the welfare of students who uh, read differently and who are dyslexic. Uh, every organization kind of is a little different. So at IDA Maryland, we have partnered up with uh, Kennedy Krieger Institute and in helping support some of the research that they're doing. Um, we've, we're working with Enoch Pratt Libraries to do some initiatives with them. So we try to help all angles of people who would interact with uh, people with dyslexia and help give them the tools they need to be successful in, you know, giving them the right, um, the right pathway to help, help them when, you know, in their struggles. Yeah, and I would, you know, just expand a little bit that IDA really focuses on spreading awareness um, so really having you know, other people understand what dyslexia is, dispelling some myths about dyslexia, really educating parents, teachers, and community members on dyslexia and structured literacy. And I think that's, that's the really important piece of all this too, is I think as educators, as people who, who are dyslexic in my case, and people who, you know, we research this stuff, we read about this stuff. So to us, a lot of the things that we know about it. it's like well of course you know of course like you know this is what dyslexia is it's you know this neurobiological thing of course you use structured literacy programs to help these students achieve but then when you start to interact with other people who aren't you know reading this type of stuff every day you realize that like for a lot of people it's it's a very unknown thing and and they hear the word dyslexia and they they have preconceived notions of them of like what it is and what it means and and then you have to start working through that. And I think that's one of the most interesting things, especially having been a teacher at Gemesee, 
you know, it's like we lived and breathed dyslexia. I mean, everybody, all the people I was working with, we all knew dyslexia. We knew the intricacies of it. But then when you start to go beyond that, you realize like, oh, I was in my little bubble of these educators who were all committed to that same cause, but it, it changes at different places. And you realize that the, the getting the awareness out there is, is huge. It's a really important piece of a lot of what we do. Yeah, I really didn't understand dyslexia um, before coming to Gemesee. I didn't really know much about it. Um, and I was a media specialist at the time. So I was working in libraries and in schools. And so, you know, understanding better how students read, the process of reading, um, the science behind reading was really eye-opening to me. So I've really learned a lot in this, in this process and really understanding that there needs to be more information um, spread around about dyslexia. For those who may not know, dyslexia is a lifetime disorder where uh, your ability to read and connect um, and decode letters is effective. And more than that, it can stem into other forms of dyslexia like dyscalculia and dysgraphia as well. And there's a lot of myths surrounding dyslexia and it's many, many uh, comorbid sometimes partners. <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, you know, like my favorite myth, and I, you, you tell me if they taught you this in school too. My favorite myth was, well, just read it backwards and the, mm -hmm. and the words will make sense. And I'm like, they, they don't make sense to me, forwards right. or backwards. <laughs> you know, the bed still looks like bed. It doesn't look like dead. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that that is like one of the most common things you always hear is like, oh, you see letters backwards or, you know, it, it's that. It's like you read backwards or, oh, you see random letters backwards. And it's one of the most common things that people have trouble understanding. And, you know, it was one of those things where they always would say, this is a red flag. You know, it's like, oh, if they're writing letters backwards. It's a red flag. But what we realize now is it's not really a red flag. It's just part of natural development for kids that some kids write things backwards and hold on to that a little bit longer than others and others don't. Um, and I think that's the complexity of dyslexia is really you're looking at, there's so many different facets and reading is very complex. And so for someone who's dyslexic, they could be a fluent reader, but have poor comprehension for other reasons. And then you could have someone who has very high comprehension who is a chair, like who's not fluent in their reading. And like, that's where I fall in line where I can comprehend things very well, but if I'm to read something, it's very choppy. I stammer a little bit. Um, so for me, like audiobooks are my saving grace. I mean, to the day I still listen to audiobooks. and where I work, I work at the Roland Park Country School and we do we, what we call the reading revolution. And we really try to get kids reading to get them not just reading books in English, but just taking time out of classes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, how wherever it's, it's you know, appropriate. And we all sit down and we just read. Everyone pulls out a free reading book and reads. And I do the same thing. And, but I sit there and I put my, my one earpiece in and I put up the audiobook and I read and I show these kids. It's like, yeah, like I'm listening to audiobooks, but I'm still reading. And it's for me, I try to be an example of it's this is still a form of reading and still good to do and for me that's how I best comprehend so we talk about things like awareness and stuff but you know that's where you know it's the complexity of dyslexia is tricky because of that I do the same thing 
audiobooks are the best way for me to comprehend a book. They have been since I was a kid. I used to do the listen. I used to listen to a cassette. That's how old I am. I used to listen to a cassette as the book was in front of me and go word for word to try to memorize the words. And it, it, you know, it didn't work for me. But what I found was if I just paid attention to the tape, I could easily comprehend. So, you know, one of the other myths that really drives me nuts, and I don't know about you guys, is that kids with dyslexia or adults with dyslexia really just need to try harder. Oh, you made yeah. that was that was not a good thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think I remember sitting down, and I mean, the the reality for me was in order to achieve the the grades that my peers got, I often had to do things that would take me three or four times longer. You know, reading something, I you know, if it was we had to read a chapter of a book. I had to read that chapter three times before I truly comprehended it compared to other people who can read something on first pass. And, you know, even, even today, you know, with Christine and me, it's like, you know, Christine's not dyslexic and there's times where she'll read something and I'm just like, hold on, I've got to reread this. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm envious at times because she can do things so much quicker in that realm. But um, yeah, I know it, it, it's, I it think it's easy to, to sit there and go, Oh, you're not trying hard enough. It, it's a very, it's an easy thing to do when you don't understand something. But the reality is, oftentimes these type of kids are often um, exhausted from the amount of energy they actually have to put into going through their day to day lives. I mean, even in a math class, there's reading involved. You know, there there's still comprehension that has to take place, and it's so much more challenging that by the time they get to the end of the day, some of these kids are going to be exhausted just from the energy they're putting into. So, yeah, that is. I, 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 yeah, that one, uh, that one gets me. Well, it's, it's tough too, because Dan and I have both taught, you know, students who have dyslexia. And I think we can both agree that those students work just as hard, if not harder. And I've had students actually say, you know, I feel like I have to work so much harder than, you know, other students at other schools, you know, but I think when they realize their strengths that they bring to the table, that can really help kind of overcome some of those hardships. Um, a lot of, you know, students and, and people with dyslexia are very creative. Um, a lot of people also have, you know, great strengths in math. Um, for example, Dan has strengths in math. So it really is, you know, kind of an individual um, diagnosis, if you will. Like right. there's some commonalities, right? But then it can look different for different people. Like Dan mentioned his brother being a bit more severe um, with dyslexia than than himself. So just really thinking that everybody has their individual diagnosis going to look different, but they're also going to have those individual strengths too. And, you know, we bring up comorbidities, right? So other challenges um, can be executive functioning. So that can cause people to look on the outside and say, well, they are not trying hard. They're disorganized. They can't turn things in on time. Uh, you know, I just don't understand, you know, what's wrong with them, right? But when you realize that there's these comorbidities, that there's anxiety, that there's some difficulties with executive functioning, that you realize that there's more to it than, you know, struggling with reading. So when you think about all these things that somebody's going through in their mind, in their day-to-day -day lives, like Dan mentioned, you realize that 
they're not being lazy. They're, it's not that they're not trying hard enough. It's that they need the right supports to be successful. So I'm going to throw a little stat back you just to back that up. About 14% of school populations nationwide have something, have a handicapping condition that qualifies them for special education. They found that about 20% of that population as a whole have some symptoms of dyslexia. You know, that shows inaccurate reading, poor spelling, poor writing, mix, mixing up similar words. But it also goes undiagnosed because of people who can find coping skills. And that means that these numbers, while I can throw out and say special education accounts for 7% of all education in the country, how many, how many students go undiagnosed because, it's, uh, because they cope? And then the other, the other myth that I found doing research into dyslexia was that, oh, it doesn't start until like first or second grade. That's when they notice it. But there's a lot of symptoms uh, for dyslexia that can pop up before, like you were saying, that those comorbid um, executive mm -hmm. dysfunction deals can pop up before. Yeah. And, and it's also, you know, when you talk about young children, it can show up first in their oral language, right? So the basis of reading is oral language. So, you know, children have to have a grasp on that before they start to read, right? So that's one of the things that you can look for in terms of a symptom is they may have, um, they may struggle to pick up speech, you know, as fast as their peers would. So they might be a little bit behind with talking. They may, may have problems with um, rhyming those types of things. Yeah. Well, and I think on, on to, you know, like the ones who got by longer, you know, I think from my experience too, is a lot of those kids, when we, they would come in, we'd see them, you know, being diagnosed older, they often like, just like how I was, it, it's the, they can memorize and That is how they were able to get through, especially in, you know, in certain public schools where there you can, you can get through, through some remote rote memorization to the point where hey, you may not be a high flyer student, but you're not on, you know, you're not throwing up red flags. You're doing well enough that like, you know, you're okay. You're passing at what you need to. And I think that that becomes, you know, what happens with some of these kids there, they are very intelligent and they are able to recall information, but then when you actually ask them to um, to analyze something, something that's beyond just a fact retrieval, that can be a lot trickier. And those are the kids where they're they're very hard to diagnose at times in in these early grades because it's like they know their sight words because they've memorized their sight words. You know, they they know the the books because they've memorized all the words of the book, and they can they look at it like a symbol and they just read it as if they're looking at, you know, a symbol or a picture, not necessarily breaking the word down phonetically and decoding the word and understanding, you know, the components of what's happening. Do you think that it's a, it's much more recognized today since um, because of work like IDA does and because of uh, other, other students who were dyslexic coming back and going, no, it really is a thing and this is how to help. Do you think it's more recognized now? I think it is. I think with IDA and what they've done over the years with raising awareness, you know, they have a yearly conference, uh, which brings together a lot of different people from all over the world. Um, a lot of researchers who are sharing what they've discovered in terms of the science of reading, 
the you know neurological aspects of reading and what actually happens in the brain, some brain research. It's really amazing, but I do think that we have helped in terms of what IDA has done. And we think about you know the specialized schools across the United States that are for students with dyslexia and other language-based learning disabilities. I think it shows that there's a need um, to pay attention to this population of students, that it's it's um, you know not a small number, as you pointed out with your statistics. You know we can assume that maybe those numbers are a little bit bigger than that because we do have students who are coping who have gone um, undiagnosed. Um, but now that we do have some, some laws that, that are starting to be passed in terms of screening for dyslexia, um, for example, in kindergarten now. Um, I think that that's really going to help hopefully catch it a, a bit sooner um, than we were before. So it's definitely a conversation that's going to keep going. We haven't solved all the world's problems yet, right? Um, but I think as long as we continue doing the research and people start thinking, you know, not just um, about the brain, but also what does it look like in the classroom? How do we apply that research into actual practice? Um, as long as we keep doing that and we keep trying to learn more and more um, and apply this into education and support parents in the community, I really feel like we're going to find a lot of good success. Right. And I think, and with a greater understanding <clears throat> becomes more understanding of the subtle nuances of trying to diagnose a student like this. And I think, you know, I think the next frontier in like the educational world is going to be things like uh, dyscalculia. I always mess up this word, dyscalculia. Sorry, as a dyslexic, it's very hard to say it. Um, uh, dyscalculia. And I think that is when you actually look at like research between those, between dyslexia and dyscalculia, or dyscalculia um, it is, you know, it's the dyslexia, the research in dyslexia is m much more vast than the other with dyscalculia. And I think that's going to be a, the next frontier we're going to be growing with is what about these kids who struggle at math? Because, you know, we learn math very similar to like a language. I mean, it, there's a whole language component to learning math and, and the kids who struggle, it's like, you know, it is like they all say it's the math dyslexia. And I think, you know, so I think they're just comparing the research, you can see that like, there's a lot of funding, there's a lot of push for that, but there's still more to be known, you know, about dyslexia, dyscalculia, and, and how they also interact and how the, the comorbidities of these two also. Well, that's definitely true. I can tell you from my own personal experience, numbers and letters look alike to me. So having worked with the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> <laughs> and the Library of Congress system, whoops. <laughs> You know, at the Library for the Blind and Print Disabled, we do everything by accession number. So it's just a number. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not seeing an L, I'm seeing a seven, <laughs> things like that. But back back in my days of being a public librarian, I was I was the branch manager. I was not allowed to shelve books because I would get them. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that testing is a is a thing. And uh, the sooner sooner kids can get tested for dyslexia, the better. Mm. Um, can you describe from both your all's experiences how testing went or works? Because I think a lot of parents are kind of nervous about it. They don't want their kid to feel othered or um, they don't. It's like, yeah, but, you know, I'm not dyslexic as far as I know, <laughs> you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So can you tell me a little bit about your experiences there? 
Sure. I mean, I know for me, my, how I was tested is, is going to be different how when they screen kids in the kindergarten age. Um, for me, you know, I went through several sessions with a licensed uh, educational psychologist and, um, and you kind of went through, you know, recall of information and reading comprehension. And, you know, they, we did things with math. And I, I always remember we went out to the like the yard area and I had to catch things with my right hand and my left hand. I mean, it was literally, you know, a a range of things that you had to do. And I think for me, knowing I was struggling and my parents knowing I was struggling, the, the label was kind of reassuring for me. And it's as if you're like, you know, if, if like, you know, something's hurting, your legs are hurting, it's constantly hurting, you're trying to stretch it, you, you try to, you know, do exercises for it, it's still not working, and you finally get a diagnosis. And that diagnosis has some things that you can actually work on to help you. And then you start doing those things, and it works, you don't fear the label anymore. And of course, there's an initial fear of like, what does this mean? But that, and that's where that, that anxiety with parents, that fear comes from is that like, what is this label going to like mark the student or my, my child to be? But the reality is it's a diagnosis that, that offers a lot of paths to success. And I think that's the framing we want as part of IDA. We want parents to see is that this isn't a bad thing. This is just a, okay. Now we know why, now we know what we need to do. Let's find out what we need to do to move forward. But I think, but I understand the parent concern of, you know, there could be this label to it. Um, But, and that's where we, you know, with IDA want to help parents. We want to help them become better advocates too. And I think part of that is, you know, it's learning some of the jargon of this and it's learning the verbiage and what these things mean. And I think, you know, you know, I have, I have a friend who's an attorney and it's like, sometimes the language they use, I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I think sometimes in education, we do some similar things where we, we think about the, the terms we're using. It's like, oh yeah, of course. Like, you know, I, I understand that, but parents don't, and it sounds scary to them. And it, it sounds, it, it's learning how to, how to articulate that to people who don't, who aren't doing this as a profession and are just trying to make sure their kid gets the best education they can possibly get. So I know for me, my testing was a little different, you know, versus how they might screen it through um, the schools now, but that's, you know, but that's how we do it. And that, and that I understand that the, you know, the concerns of the parents there. Mm-hmm. I want to expand a little bit more on the idea of a label um, in all of the, the literature that I've read. Um, it's very clear that, some people feel comforted by the label um, being diagnosed with dyslexia. Me. <laughs> and <laughs> whereas other people, you know, they don't want to feel like they are, you know, the other or that they have a disability or that they have a, a difficulty and that it can lower their self-esteem and um, cause some issues there with, with mental health. So um, it's be- really being sensitive to the fact that every child, every family um, is going to uh, treat the diagnosis a little bit differently and the news of the diagnosis a little bit differently. So it's really important on the educator side um, to be very sensitive to that fact. Um, you know, when we talk about screening and Dan's right, it looks different now than it did, you know, when when he was diagnosed. and um, 
students are diagnosed in different ways. So it can be that a teacher notices that they're having some reading difficulties and they um, may request them to have a psychoeducational evaluation. Um, it may be that they are screened in kindergarten with the reading specialist, for example, and they notice that, you know, oh, the reading seems to be difficult. This is what I'm picking up on. Maybe it's fluency, um, maybe it's word recognition, decoding, whatever it may be um, that they're picking up on um, some issues. But there's different types of assessments um, that teachers and reading specialists uh, use. So that can help assess if they have dyslexia or not. Yeah. And, and a lot of the testing is it, it's, you know, especially what they can do now, you know, early on at the kindergarten level, it's, you know, they're checking, like Christine was saying, they're checking reading level, they're checking fluency. It, it, for, the, for the kid to come in, they're not framing this as like this high stakes test. It's like really, it's sort of like what we're doing now. It's conversational. It's, hey, let's read a story. Hey, let's try to read these words. You know, it, it's nothing that the kid's going to try to feel overwhelmed by, or they're going to really know this is like, oh, this is determining something. Because to them, they're just there to read some words. And the specialist is there to just kind of observe what the student's doing and get an idea and just bring awareness of like, okay, yeah, the, you know, everything looks good or things to be aware of. Maybe, you know, further testing could be necessary or it might be shown right then and there. So, um, you know, I think the, the big thing is just, you know, the student in those type of testing situations, even me, and I knew I was going in to be tested. It didn't even feel like a test necessarily. It just felt like you're just, you're going in for these sessions to learn to just do some things. And that's kind of how most of them are framed. Mm -hmm. One of the um, things I, I remember from my test that I found very helpful was the fact that it was a school psychologist. I was in 12th grade. And uh, she said, well, now that you know what it is, you can ask for um, accommodation. I think that's something that I wish I wish I had when I was younger. <laughs> um, but now as an adult, I have learned over the years to advocate for myself and say, hey, I need a special piece, piece of software that um, will make it a little easier for me. I need, I, you know, can I get this in an audio format to make it process better? So do you find that having, um, that once the testing is done, parents and students can advocate for their needs a little bit better? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think, um, you know, with the younger student, it starts with the parent being the advocate, and then it turns to the student as they kind of get older. And it depends on their school setting. But the big thing for students with dyslexia is definitely that self-advocacy piece. Once they know that these are kind of the areas I'm struggling in, and then they start to learn what can help me, and then actually going to the teacher and saying, this is what I need. It's very empowering, but we have to remember that that takes time to kind of build up that self-advocacy piece. It's, it's not something that's going to come necessarily naturally. So supporting the parents to, you know, help the student understand, like, this is how you can go and ask your teacher for something um, is, is really huge. And I think too, going back to the educator side, you know, making sure that you're supporting students with dyslexia in that way too, and saying, hey, is there something that I can do to make this better for you? And, you know, kind of putting the student a little bit in the driver's seat, mm -hmm. I think can really help with that, that self-advocacy piece. But, you know, it really resonates with me when you talk about 
like 12th grade, right? You're then thinking, oh, I'm going to go to college. And what we're finding is a lot of, you know, students who have dyslexia are not going into the college setting and saying, you know, I have a learning disability and I need these supports and, you know, actually accessing the supports that colleges provide, um, which is, I think really shows that we really need to be lifting the spirits of, of people with dyslexia, that they can be just as successful, if not more successful than anybody else, right? Um, but I think that that comes through, I think that comes through family. I think that comes through the school, friends, you know, having that support system um, to really push you through. But I think that we do need to work on being those those advocates for those students and especially when they're getting into that older age that you know it's okay even as an adult to ask for help and to do things differently and get accommodations it's the same thing in the workplace you know what i'm looking at with teachers with dyslexia it's the same kind of thing what i'm looking for is i i want those teachers to also be advocating for themselves in the workplace and say i need these accommodations. I need this to be more accessible to me. You know, I need things to be formatted differently. Um, I think it's really important. That's again, that lifelong diagnosis piece. We need to be thinking about how can we support in all phases of life. And, and it's to me too, this is, it, it's an equity issue too. It's an equity issue for these neurodivergent thinkers. I mean, they, they need these type of supports to be on a level playing field where they can have they can be as successful as they are meant to be and, and I think that's what's really really important with these types of things and I think for some students they get the you know they'll get the extended times they'll get the readers the audiobooks the note takers that help them immensely and they'll see it right away and they'll they'll go okay like this is exactly you know what what I need to be successful but there's others that still feel reluctant about using that time you know they the, and that's the, that is the tricky part of it. And that's the part where, you know, we as educators need to make sure we're helping build that confidence to know that, no, it's okay to use this stuff. This isn't cheating. This isn't, you're not getting an advantage over other students. You're, this is allowing you to have the time you need to show what you really know. And I think about me as someone who took a longer time to read or needed to read a few times to comprehend something that my peers could comprehend in one read through you know, I needed that time and a half to actually take time to do the multiple reads. Whereas if I only could have had enough time to read it once and then had to answer things or respond to questions, I would never be able to show what I actually knew about the material. And I think it's allowing students to see that, but it's also teaching them that it's okay to ask for this and be okay about it. And I know it's like, for me as a teacher, one of the first things I tell my students every year is like, I am dyslexic and I will you know, I kind of wear it like a badge of honor because I want them to know it's like, it's okay. And like, they'll ask me questions. And I think it's great. Like, I just make sure that they know, you know, that this is who I am. And I'm proud that this is, you know, the type of person I am. And I tell them like, look, sometimes if I'm reading a math problem, a word problem on the board or science, you know, uh, passage to them, I might stammer a little bit. I might, you know, I might trip up on a word or two and this is why, and it's okay. You know, it's, and this is for you to understand. And I know Christine talked about with adults that, you know, all my coworkers know. So they know, like, if I'm getting lots of emails, like, I don't just, I can't just respond to an email, you know, quickly. I have to take time sometimes, you know, if it's a short email, sure. But if it's a longer email, I need time to comprehend that before I can just like respond back. 
you know, and, you know, I wish I could be someone who could just be quick to do it, but I'm not. And I've accepted that. And I just, you know, it's okay. And because when I do respond, I respond thoroughly and I respond, you know, appropriately. So kind of shifting the conversation just a little bit back to IDA, you know, I know IDA uh, advocates. So first off, the website is dyslexiaida.org. Yep. Is the yes. Website. And they do have a very active Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> the Twitter is very active. Um, I, uh, I mostly follow on Twitter and Facebook, but um, there's a wealth of resources here. If someone wanted to get in touch with um, this IDA Maryland, you know, and they wanted to learn more or join, how would they go about it? Sure. So yeah. it, it's it's really nice because it's dyslexiaida.org, but for Maryland, it's md.dyslexiaida.org. So that should bring you right to the website. And from there, we have some information and we have we have some contact information. And that's kind of where from there on, you know, you can get, uh, you know, you can be in contact with us. We get contacted all the time and we let people know, you know, they'll ask various questions across the board of, you know, about testing and about, um, you know, if they have concerns about, you know, their husband or their wife. And that's the, the great part about our board is that we have um, a variety of people. We have people who work just in business and who are, you know, working communications and marketing and who are attorneys. And then we have, you know, we have people who also work, you know, in education as teachers. We have people who are educational advocates. We have um, psychoeducational evaluators on the board. So the board itself is composed of a variety of people from a variety of perspectives. So as different questions come to us, as we reach out to various organizations, we have a variety of um, a variety of perspectives to talk about. So, um, so yeah. So that's like the best way to 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 find Maryland uh, IDA, um, and then from there on, we you know we have a variety of things you can read about. Yeah. So on our um, both websites, the main uh, IDA website and the Maryland website, we do have a link for membership, and there are different types of memberships. So. If you're an educator, uh, a parent, a professional, um, there are different types of memberships that you can um, receive there. And that allows you to receive some of the publications that IDA puts out, some of the current research, which is really great. Um, IDA's website also has fact sheets. So very you know, quick, like dyslexia, at a glance, what are some things that I need to know right there? There is a provider directory on the website as well um, underneath what is dyslexia. And that is a great place if you are looking for um, you know, your child to get evaluated um, or yourself to be evaluated. There's also areas for uh, teachers to get different types of certifications um, related to dyslexia and the science of reading. There's also the conference. Um, so there's information on the past conferences and then the conferences coming up uh, as well is on there. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. You know, this just makes me want to work with you guys more. <laughs> Good. So our, our library, our library serves those who have dyslexia, but it's you know getting into the schools where we're trying to say, hey, if you have a student with dyslexia, low vision, or, or whatever, 
um, that qualify for service, you know, they're like, no, we're, we're busy right now. And, and, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of, um, it hurt, you know, it, it's a hard connection to make. But one of the cool things about having you guys on this podcast is that our patrons are going to learn more about dyslexia and hopefully reach out for some support, you know, because I do believe that dyslexia kind of transcends a lot of other, other issues mm -hmm. um, that can be there. Well, the floor is yours. Is there anything you'd like to add to tonight's conversation? I mean, no, I mean, it's, it's been wonderful. I mean, I, I love talking about this stuff and as always, you know, people can feel free to reach out to, you know, IDA Maryland for anything they are wondering about or any, any direction that they might need, we can help provide that for them, you know, and, and IDA Maryland, like we, like we talked about it, you know, it, it is for advocating and advocacy and awareness of dyslexia and structured literacy programs. But with at Maryland, you know, IDA, we, you know, we look all across the board as with adults too. And, you know, so we, we welcome any and all people who want to reach out to us, who want to be involved in some way or a part of an organization that want to connect with us. And, you know, we want to hear from all. And that's, you know, Christine and I have, you know, been a part of uh, IDA in these leadership roles for a year now. And I think we keep learning more and more each day and we, we want to grow the organization, the outreach of the organization. So by all means, you know, if anyone is interested, we, we'd love for you to reach out, you know, through, through the website, through, you know, there's a, the connect, there's the, was it the, the email available there? So, yes. And I think what's great about IDA is that we have branches, you know, I think it's 44 states now. Mm -hmm. um, so really across the United States, which is great. So it's not just in Maryland, but we have boards all over and you have access to that on the main IDA website, which states have a board in place right now. And uh, it is great to reach out to other people to, you know, just learn what they're doing and see how that you can support. Or if you, um, you know, need help with anything, we try to do our best to um, support in any way we can. And we are really trying to create kind of a, a network and like a web of resources, especially for us in Maryland, um, like, for example, with different types of libraries showing that, you know, it's not just these standalone organizations, but that we're coming together to support one another and to support the community around us. Well, let us know how the Library for the Blind and Print Disabled can help, because that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a patron of the library myself because of my dyslexia. So it's, you know, a great resource to talk about there too. Thank you guys so much for being here and being part of this. Um, I know you were giving up a little bit of your evening, so I appreciate it very much to uh, record this. Thank you so much. Join us again for uh, another LBBD guest hour. We'll see everyone soon. This has been a presentation of the Maryland State Library Agency. For links to additional resources provided by today's presenter, please visit the show notes. For more information on MSLA or the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Print Disabled, visit marylandlibraries.org.